friends. Welcome back to Marketing Sweats. Today, I'm talking to founding partner of two highly sought after organizations, Ignition Consulting Group and the business model company, Mr. Tim Williams. Now, if you're an agency listener, you likely know Tim's work. His two books, Take a Stand for Your Brand and Positioning for Professionals, have been the fodder of much industry discussion and debate about how we all need to reshape our businesses for success. I've personally heard Tim speak on these topics countless times, and each time I leave feeling a little inspired to reinvent Symantle. However, if you're not an agency person, but a brand marketer, today's interview will give you an inside look into how an ex-agency guy, someone who has led at the highest levels of the multinationals and independent firms, took insights he saw in the world where he worked and went out on his own to help other leaders build their businesses. His ideas, I'd argue, aren't agency specific, but rather innovative ways all of us can really hone in on who we want to target and what we want to do well. We'll even get into a little bit of discussion about pricing model evolution for agencies, but also how pricing models need to break out of the standards that were set well before our time to reflect the true value of our ideas and innovation. I think you'll enjoy listening to Tim's humble insights. He's been so great to learn from and so generous in sharing his time and ideas with me. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Thank you again for doing this. I have admired your work for a very long time, both through some of those speaking engagements that you've done for Amen and even some of the Mirren conferences that my partners and I have attended in Chicago. So excited to talk to you today. My pleasure to be here. You have big agency experience, the likes of Ogilvy and Burson Marsteller, but you've also run your own mid-sized independent firms. I'd love for you to walk us through how you got to where you are today. I decided early on that I was going to do my best to get a job on Madison Avenue. So I moved to New York right out of school and thought that gaining some large agency experience would be useful for me, which it really was. I loved my time at the multinational agencies and I learned a lot, particularly at Ogilvy, which considers itself the teaching hospital of agencies. They're oriented around learning and teaching their people and mentoring. So that's a great agency, great experience. I went on from there to found my own firm, which at the time was called Williams and Rockwood, now called Richter 7, in my hometown of Salt Lake City. I wasn't sure I would ever come back to Salt Lake after leaving and living lots of other places. It's a great place to live and was fortunate to be able to, to do that. I also was president of R&R Partners based in Las Vegas, and they're best known for the What Happens in Vegas Stays in Vegas campaign, which, cool. was, which was done when I was there. That's a pretty big independent agency, maybe 250 employees, midsize, we'd say, but with four or five offices. And that was great experience too. And, and all good for me and my consulting work, good background, because a lot of my work is with small and midsize independent agencies, also the multinationals. So I play in both worlds. So it's fortunate I've had experience in both worlds. Tell me about the What Happens Here Stays Here campaign. I have to ask, one of the coolest campaigns ever. What was that like to be a part of? Well, it was a result of a lot of account planning. We had a very talented account planner that helped us uncover that concept. But believe it or not, it wasn't our recommended choice. We went in with several campaigns and that was one of our options, but the client immediately fell in love with it. The question I get asked most often, because I also teach pricing strategy for agencies, is, well, how did you get paid for that incredibly valuable idea? Right. right. The unfortunate answer at the time was, by the hour, of course. I now <laughs> really crusade against uh, in a very big way. And that's a pretty good demonstration why. 
I decided to form Ignition Consulting Group about 20 years ago and had the uh, crazy idea that I would just focus on the agency sector. I wasn't going to do any work uh, client side, and I never have. I get calls from clients fairly regularly that assume that I must also work in their space. But if I were back in the agency business, I would have jumped at very large Fortune 500 companies that I now turn down, refer them elsewhere and gracefully and diplomatically as I can. I've wanted to stay focused in the area that I feel like I know best. And that's part of what I teach in my consulting work is play where you know the game and where you have the most expertise. So I've been focused exclusively on working with agencies and some other professional service firms. I found that other professional services like law firms, accounting firms, IT consulting firms, architectural firms, they all have the same issues agencies do. We have very similar business models. We have similar pricing strategies and similar problems when it comes to positioning strategy and so forth. Over the years, I've been dragged into those worlds by other consultants that are now friends and colleagues of mine, where I will go teach positioning strategy to law firms. And I've taught pricing strategy to accounting firms and so forth. I want to take a step back and understand you as a human a little bit better. Talk a little bit about the roles that you played in the agency world. What were some of your core strengths? What were you good at? And what informed that, I guess, in your upbringing? Like a lot of us in the ad business, we're not completely sure what role we want to play inside an agency. We just know we like the business. And I was torn completely between account work or trying to break into copywriting. I interviewed and I felt like I could do either job. And I was offered a position in account service. So I thought, okay, I'll give that a shot and see if I like it. But I've worked as a copywriter also and in account service and as an account planner. If I had my life to do over again, I definitely would go on the account planning side, on the strategy side. That was good experience for what I'm doing now to be able to work in different disciplines. I'm in the process of doing my own book project right now. One of the things I've learned through the process of being able to name ideas that you have, that's Mm. been a learning for me. That seemed to come naturally to you. You would probably recognize insights in the business and just have some really convicted beliefs that you've been easily able to translate into projects. Well, I consider myself a teacher for sure, but more than anything, a student of the business. I love studying the business and I come from a family of academics. I'm kind of the black sheep because I went into advertising. I've got this academic streak that really underpins my interest in studying the successes of other businesses. And that's led to me writing the books as well. Tell us a little bit about your business today, the business model and all the different kinds of services you offer. I started, as I mentioned, focused on a market that I felt I knew well, which were agencies, and with a service offering that I felt agencies needed, and that was helping them with their own business strategy and positioning strategy. One of the great ironies of our business, that agencies as brand doctors are notoriously bad at applying that medicine to themselves. We are. Not only are we in the service business and always distracted by client demands, but it's really difficult to be objective about your own business, isn't it? It's your baby. And I'm learning that. (laughs) And it's hard to see what's in the bottle when you're inside the bottle. You can't read the label from inside the bottle. That's, I believe, half the value an outside consultant can bring. I, early on, decided I would teach business strategy, positioning strategy to agencies, and I wrote a book 
called Take a Stand for Your Brand. And it's focused exclusively on the agency world. And it helped me formalize my own process and the approach that I bring to my business. It helped me put on paper what I believe and also mapped out a process for how agencies and other professional firms can think through their business strategy, kind of step by step, do Mm -hmm. this and then do this and then do this. So it became a framework and a roadmap for my consulting work. Then you've gone on and you've built on that book to write your second book, Positioning for Professionals. And they both seem to circle around this idea of being different. I pulled out this quote, most managers invest their time and energy in trying to make their firms better when in fact they should also be working to make their firms different. That's your core idea. Excellence is not a strategy. By itself, it's not enough to differentiate. There's this idea of effective positioning strategy lives at the intersection of relevance and differentiation. So certainly you have to be relevant. You have to provide something your buyers want, your prospects want, but you also have to provide it in a different way because competency is table stakes, especially now. There are a lot of people excellent in their craft and excellent at what they do. The question is, can you provide it in a unique enough way that makes you a brand in demand? I love this idea that the ultimate positioning strategy is to be in a category of one. You're the only one on the planet that does it. We're in the process of strategic planning for our company right now, and we're looking at growth areas. We're looking at the market. We're seeing what services clients are going to need and really trying to line our teams to go after that. But just this morning, I was on a leadership call and the very question came up, are we just chasing the trends? Are we trying to create the trends? Are we trying to stand Mm -hmm. out? You came to mind for me, Tim, because I'm sure that you find lots of agencies and companies chasing and trying to grow service areas without really figuring out who they are at their core. There's a big difference between business planning and business strategy, because when we're doing planning, we are looking at trends. We're trying to forecast our revenue with business strategy. We're looking at what we're trying to forecast the future. So you have to be very forward looking and have a sense for what the market wants. That said, I firmly believe that the outside market cannot tell you what your strategy should be. Your clients can't tell you, your competitors can't tell you, because all they can do is reflect back to you who you already are. They can't imagine who you could be. There's a famous quote everybody in our business knows. Henry Ford said, if I'd asked consumers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Steve Jobs famously said, we would have never created the iPhone based on consumer focus group. Nobody knew they needed an iPhone. It takes a visionary type of organization to say, we're doing this, we're going this way, and we'll watch the market follow. How much of that when you work with um, executive teams is really based on personal passions of the leader versus the outside in look at what could be? I've learned sometimes the hard way that at the very least, that's a very important watch out because I've had the experience of working with professional organizations where we engage the senior leadership team, we solicit input, we want buy-in and we want ownership, and they identify a particular strategic direction only to find in the end that the founder of the firm just isn't personally passionate. And I've had that happen a couple of times. And now I've learned to upfront in this process, make sure that we're focused on something that's going to have the the personal interest of the founder. It's this idea of you might be good at it, but are you interested in it? So I've actually, as a tool, I created a grid with the two axes. One is interest and the other is expertise. So you might have high expertise, but low interest, et cetera, et cetera, for quadrants. People can pick up on whether you're personally invested, not just good at it. Oh, for sure. 
that you're not just chasing the money. We've talked about how you work with agencies and professional service firms, but I also have been challenging you to say these concepts apply of focus and brand differentiation. It's what we do as marketers. For sure. Your service offering or who you are might apply to lots of different segments, but you got to figure out where you want to start. And it seems like that was your strategy too, Tim. You're like, I know this space. I can win this space. I can go a step outside of this space to other professional service firms. This is my lane in terms of my go-to-market strategy. Yeah. And it's scary because it feels narrow. I can't tell you how many people ask me, why are you limiting yourself to agencies? You could work for marketers and lots of people need this kind of help. So it's counterintuitive because we assume that the more doors we leave open, the more ways prospects can walk through and do business with us. But the opposite, there's really no such thing as a general market. And we teach our clients this, don't we? So agencies go into client organizations and, and we ask, well, so who's your target market? And they say, kind of everybody. And right. so we help, <laughs> right? we help them think through, well, wait a minute, you manufacture jet engines, right? So wouldn't that be like aerospace engineers? Yeah, okay, aerospace engineers. It's a scary proposition. I have tried my best to walk my talk. It turns out that when you do something that is highly specialized, if you do it well, there is a, a huge market for that. Here's an interesting juxtaposition that I think can help companies of all types understand this. You've got a strategic choice. You can either be what I call a local generalist, yeah. regional generalist, or you can be a national specialist. So if you do lots of different things, if you're full service, quote unquote, full service, which there's really no such thing, but if you want to do lots of different things like the country doctor or the family doctor is an even better example. Then you draw a market within your own zip code or two or three surrounding zip codes. You get it's a local market, generalized expertise. If what you do is hard to find, like a pediatric neurosurgeon, well, right. then your market isn't your zip code. It's the entire United States. People will fly thousands of miles to do business with you. And the same is true in professional services in our business. If you do something that's hard to find, then you've got a bigger market, not a smaller one. Well, I'll never forget sitting in some high rise in Chicago listening to you speak. And there was a slide where you talked about you either need to be really good at an industry vertical or you need to really know your specialty or in some cases, both. The most basic way to think about it, I've actually developed, because consultants have to do this, a series of mnemonic devices that are memorable. So I call it who, which is what's your market, what's your offering, way, which is how do you deliver this? And why, which is your purpose. So you've right. got who, what, way, and why. Of those, I believe that the best positioning strategies for any kind of business have a good differentiating answer to all four of those. For this kind of client, we provide this kind of service in this kind of way because of this belief. The two basic ones, which you said, are, are the who and the what. So deciding that you're going to focus on a particular market space, me with agencies, your firm with B2B, other agencies with healthcare or technology or life sciences, they're really interesting examples of that. The other is the what, which is, no, actually, we're not going to focus on a particular market, but we're going to offer a solution set that is unique. This is going to start sounding like Dr. Seuss now, but if you have a narrow who, you can have a broad what. If you have a narrow what, you can have a broad who. Does that make sense? It does make sense. At least speaking for my company and, and even a lot of my clients, we have a lot of conversation about who and what. 
But I find that with the world changing so rapidly, especially in the advertising industry, the how you do things is changing pretty rapidly Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. us and for our clients as they're trying to move into more of a customer experience type company. And with the change of leadership, sometimes the why changes. The how, which I call way, is the most difficult way to differentiate your firm. But it is the default approach of most agencies. Really? Uh, Strategic process. Right. right? It's our unique strategic process, or we're more creative than other agencies. They try, and it appears as a tagline on their business card, it's a how. It's a way we think, the way we see the world, the way we work. Rarely is that differentiating by itself. It's not enough. And way, your belief, your purpose, I think that's a lot less likely to change. One of the analogies I like for purpose is it's like the North Star. It's on the horizon. You're forever pursuing it, but you never fully reach it. You're always going towards it, but you never really get there. You say things like you want to make your firm hard to imitate. You want to find out of the ordinary ways to differentiate your firm from the sea of sameness. And you want to forego best practice and focus on next practices. Tell us a little bit about those. Well, let me do that in backwards order. Start with the best practices piece. These are all related, but best practices are merely copying the practices and strategies of others. It's karaoke capitalism. It's taking what others do and saying, well, let's do that. So that's never going to move you forward. It's just going to keep you at a parity. If you think about points of parity and points of differentiation, by definition, a best practice is a point of parity. So you certainly want to learn from the experiences of others. I'm a strong believer in that. I mean, you should be constantly reading and studying and asking, and we always want to learn from the experiences of others, but merely copying what they've done, best practices. I really bristle at that, like fingernails on a chalkboard. (laughs) There's a, a book called Blue Ocean Strategy, which makes the argument that you've got a choice as a business. We can play in the red ocean, which is where most companies are, and that's red from the blood of your competitors who are in there fighting for all the same scraps of business. Or you can choose to sail on the blue ocean, which is the uncharted territory where no one else is sailing. We want to be in the blue ocean. And these are useful analogies as you think through your own business strategy, because sometimes you'll have ideas that are kind of purple, not really red, not fully blue. It's purple. It's going in the right direction, but let's push it where it really is blue ocean. That's really the goal. And See of sameness, same concept. How do you help your clients do that today? Talk specifically about the process you use when working to find that point of differentiation. And are you presenting multiple directions or do you have this aha moment where you bring the team together and say, this is what I see? There definitely usually is an aha moment, but comes after a lot of foundational work. What we try to do is put on the table all the options that could work. So we want a divergent approach first by saying, okay, let's look at these four areas one at a time. Let's look at who. Over the years, what kind of markets or industries or categories or types of companies have you worked mostly with? Where have you had a really major client relationship? And and let's list all of them and we'll put it up on a board so that it's all up there. Because what we're looking for are patterns and common threads. I've had the experience with, especially with the question of market expertise of organizations sitting back and saying, wow, there's just no consistency at all there. Healthcare and beverages and automotive. But if you look closely enough, first rule is we're not trying to make all of them fit. The second is we're just trying to find a common thread in enough of these that we could 
frame it in an interesting way. And so I've had the experience of agencies saying, well, you know what these are? These are impulse brands, or Mm -hmm. these are errand brands. These are brands that you run out and do as an errand. I mean, that's a different way of framing retail in a way. And we do the same with what? We move on to what? We say, okay, what services do you offer? What are you really good at? I go through a five-page list of agency services and Mm -hmm. say, okay, rate it from low to high. How good are you at this and this and this and this? And then you step back and you look for patterns and common threads there. Same with way. What are your methodologies and philosophies and ways of working? And then we save why for last, because that's by far the most difficult, the, the four questions. I find that once you lay things out and you have a group of smart people, and it's why I love having creative and strategists as part of this process, is because you then look at that and say, you know what this really is? And they come up with a really interesting way to frame it. There usually is an aha moment. It usually does not come from the the leader of the firm, I will say. Very rarely comes from the leader. The leader is on board and they like it. They love it. They're supportive. But it it came from an associate creative director or an account planner or someone else. As you were talking that through, speaking for Samantha, we've done our work in each of those lanes. I, I feel like we could answer those questions. I think that the connectivity or the spark that is the brand is mm-hmm. something that probably bubbles up in those conversations. You say why every company is a brand. Building a successful brand means going against your instincts. And I think that's an interesting one. Sometimes it's turning on your head what you think you are. Yeah. Maybe it's something else. And why every single business decision you make affects the success and reputation of your brand. I really believe that branding, positioning is not common sense. Marketing is not common sense because common sense would point us to let's market to as many people as we can with as many products as we can. And business strategy teaches the opposite. Business strategy says, no, actually, let's deliberately do fewer things really well. If you look at Hewlett Packard, they have 15,000 SKUs, but then look at Apple. At one time, they had less than 30 SKUs. They now have slightly over 100, but not 15,000. Apple just hit 2 trillion, the most valuable company in the world, with a deliberately small product line. So that's why I say it's just not common sense. An outsider would say, well, Hewlett Packard's got to be the larger company, right? Actually not. That gets back to your concept of focus. You did share with me another topic that you speak about, and that's death by a thousand features, which is what you're hinting towards there, is that sometimes it's about strategically figuring out what to say no to so that your brand can focus. Tell me about that discussion and how you help organizations shed the pieces of their current lineup that they don't really need. Great way to think about strategy. I love the apocryphal story of a visitor walking into Michelangelo's studio, and there's this big block of marble. And the visitor asked uh, the great artist, what do you plan to, to do with this marble? And Michelangelo answers, from this block of marble, I will carve the figure of David. And the visitor asks, well, wow, that's incredible. How, how do you do that? And the great artist's answer is, well, it's pretty easy. I just chip away all the parts that are not David. And so when you say shed what's not core to us, that's really the key. My favorite definition of strategy is Michael Porter, Harvey, who says strategy is deciding what not to do. It's so hard to say no. It goes against our instinct because we want to be pleasing. We want to be liked. You think about the most respected brands in the world. They are the ones that have lovers and haters. 
They have people who really love them and people who hate them. If you're a brand that's just kind of mushy or any kind of company where people are just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I kind of like them. I guess they're okay. I consider that a failure. You want to be polarizing in a positive way for a good reason. How do you help your clients overcome that fear of focus? And what if an agency truly believes that what makes them different is their end-to-end ability to execute for a client? Give me 30 minutes with them. (laughs) And I'll show them why that's just not a sustainable claim because it's just not possible to be can't be good at everything. You can't be good at everything. You can be good at something, but you can't be good at everything. Full service is the most useless waste of space on an agency website. The typical positioning strategy for a professional firm is we are a full service agency that's fully integrated and offering a wide range of service to a wide range of clients. Well, that's not a strategy. That's the absence of a strategy. You're saying, well, we're all things to all people. You haven't given any critical thought to your what, which is work best in class. You're a small firm in a small city. So what? I'm a very small firm in a pretty smallish city. And my clients are all over the world. So it doesn't matter. You can be best in class in something. You just can't be best in class in everything. The saying no part is tough, but I'm sure you've had this experience. I can't tell you how many emails I get from firms we've worked with who say, you know, today, for the very first time (laughs) in my career, I turned down a piece of business. I did it in a nice, friendly, diplomatic way, and I referred them elsewhere. But I just realized that, yeah, they've got money, but they're going to take us in the wrong direction. They're outside of our skill set. And they hang up the phone and their experiences. That was one of the most liberating things I've ever done. (laughs) It feels good. You know, you're sticking to your knitting. So is that one of the key indicators that you know you're having success with a client or in the best case scenarios, what you start seeing from clients that follow these principles? You see an almost immediate improvement in morale among the entire agency because they see that organization now has a degree of strategic integrity that they didn't have before. If you chase everything and you claim to do everything and work for every kind of business, then you feel kind of like a lot of agency people, you feel like a sellout. When you start putting some boundaries to your business and saying, well, we do this, but not that, and we want to work here, but not here, then your people rally around that and they say, wow, that feels pretty good. You know, we feel like we stand for something. Peter Drucker used to say in professional services, none of us are really employees. We're all volunteers. We could go do something else and maybe make more money in banking or Wall Street. But we choose to do what we're doing because we're drawn to the purpose of what we do. And in our business, we're drawn to the difference we know we can make to a brand, to an organization when they'll apply these principles. I think that's the most immediate impact. Margins go up. because you're playing to your strengths. And so your new business win ratio goes up instead of going for things you're not well-suited for. You're saying no to that so that you can do a better job at fewer opportunities, but you win more. And you win them at a better margin because you've got some pricing leverage. If what you do is unique and hard to find, then you've got more pricing leverage. It's the old economic axiom, what's scarce is valuable. If what you offer is exactly what every other agency does, done the same way, then procurement's going to line you up on a spreadsheet and say, these guys, they're $5 an hour more than these other guys. They're just resizing a banner ad. Let's go with the low cost provider here. When you probably save so many soft costs that you don't even realize you're losing by chasing all of this, that's just time, right? Unbelievable. There's a 
concept called the complexity tag. The more complex your organization, the more moving parts, the more practice areas, the more services, you pay a literal complexity tax. You might as well add it to the balance sheet because it's a tremendous cost of doing business. On Wall Street, they call it the diversification discount. You can Google this. You see that financial planners will discount a diverse company by 8 to 12% in terms of its stock value because they know it's harder for that kind of company to be profitable. It's true in professional services. The more we can focus on what we do best, the more operational efficiencies we have and the more of the money goes to the bottom line. Is there a magic number of specialty areas that an agency can be really good at? It depends on the company size. Some of the multinational law firms, for example, that have tens of thousands of employees and maybe hundreds of offices, those guys can get away with having 10 or 15 practice areas because they've got the bandwidth to do it. And so they would have energy and telecommunications. They can do it because some offices just do one thing. Short of that, I find anything more than three or four can stretch your, your yeah. firm beyond its capacity. In the sense of, like you said, industry focus or three to four even specialty areas of focus as it relates to your service disciplines? I was thinking more of the market offering sure. because I think with with service offerings, while I'm opposed to the idea of claiming integration, we misuse the term. By integration, we mean, I think most agencies mean we all get along and we work <laughs> together and right. Right, that's integrated. But if you think about horizontal integration, like Apple or Nike, where you can build your services as an ecosystem. That version of integration I like. And I think that's exactly what agencies, professional services firms should do because what you're selling your client is an ecosystem of complementary, mutually reinforcing services. And there might be a lot of them. You think about Apple with Mac and iPhone and watch and everything. Well, they all talk to one another. They all run off the same platform. They're, they're fully integrated. So when you're in the Apple ecosystem, you get a lot of value from that. I think that, that agencies can build the same kind of ecosystem out of what I call solution sets. One of the mistakes we make is just selling this bullet point list of services, mm, like yeah. new advertising, graphic <laughs> design. Some of it's really nitpicky, like copywriting. Ted Levitt, Harvard said, nobody buys a three-quarter inch drill. They buy the expectation of a three-quarter inch hole. So we should be selling the hole, not the drills. And agency websites are just lists of drills. We need to package these things together, serve them up as solutions, not services. And the holy grail is to put them together as an ecosystem. How do you advise agencies, if they do focus on a vertical, to deal with competitive situations? I was talking to Allie from Signal Theory on season yep. two, and she made a great statement that if you have two, it's a conflict. If you have three, it's a specialty. It's a specialty, right. That's true. There are strange aberrations in the economy or in global affairs where okay, maybe once in every 50 years or 100 years, you might be in an unfortunate situation like you specialize in real estate. And in the 2008 Great Recession, real estate was hurt pretty badly. So is that an argument against it? Well, no, because now look at real estate. I mean, everything's quite cyclical. You know who's doing the best right now are healthcare agencies. They are mega profitable right. because of the situation we're in. So there can be external economic factors that affect it. But that's really, in my experience, never an argument 
for going all in on something. You can define a category expertise in a more interesting way. Rather than just saying healthcare, you can say health and wellness. Broaden it a bit, but you've still got boundaries around it. It's not everything. Yes. In the case of signal theory, if you talk about the food ecosystem, that's different from saying agriculture or just animal health. So there are interesting ways of framing your expertise. I like to think of it as an expertise in a type of brand more than a segment of the SIC code. Like Osborne and Barr, kind of ag specialists. Sure. At one point, they said, what we know is rural America. Well, that's pretty interesting. We know the products and services that rural America buys. It's tractors and seed and fertilizer, but it's also trucks and firearms and other things. You have so many countless examples of cool agencies that you've worked with like that, but I know some of your more recent work is on pricing strategy. Talk a little bit about helping organizations get the full value out of their ideas. I realized halfway through my consulting experience that the other side to the positioning coin was actually pricing because what you're doing with positioning is you're creating more value for your clients by providing them with unique invaluable expertise, but we rarely capture that value. We do a suboptimal job of capturing that value. 12 years ago, maybe more, I met a gentleman named Ron Baker. He was introduced to me by Tom Finneran of the 4As, who had read one of Ron's books about value pricing for professional firms. And he was just blown away by it. And he called me, he said, Tim, you got to come to San Francisco. I want you to go to dinner with Ron Baker. He's going to blow you away. He preaches against the billable hour and billable rates, and it's mind-bending. you got to meet this guy. We went to dinner, and I basically came away from it thinking, I could never work with this guy. He doesn't understand cost accounting, and despite the fact that he is an accountant. Sure. He knows it better than I do. Right. <laughs> I just thought his ideas were so insane and so crazy. Over the next couple of years, boy, he completely changed my paradigm on how I think about pricing. Mm-hmm. And the mission here was, Tim, you teach Ron about the agency business. Ron, you teach Tim about pricing. And we're going to put you guys together and roadshow and go help change the paradigm. So that was the early beginnings of it. And Ron continues to be a really close colleague. But I now have colleagues that teach this kind of pricing strategy in accounting and law and other professions. It's based on this idea that you can't really capture the value of knowledge work in an hourly rate. If you're painting a house or fixing a transmission or doing some standardized, repeatable, widely available kind of work, sure, go ahead and bill by the hour because it's understood kind of what that is worth. But what's the value of a game-changing idea for a client? There are many different ways that we can capture value that have nothing to do with the hourly rate. If you look at your client organizations, none of them do timesheets. Bill Gates never did a timesheet at Microsoft. He's made one of the richest people in the world. Jeff Bezos doesn't do a timesheet. You don't need time and time tracking as your revenue model. What we teach is this idea that an hourly rate is actually not a revenue model. It's only a cost structure. An hourly rate is your salary plus overhead. And that's just a manifestation reflection of your cost. has nothing to do with the value you're creating for a client. So. I'm part of what we think of as a pricing revolution in professional services is finally taking hold. Early experiments were with the midsize firms and and now the multinational agencies are 
everything from flat fee models to risk reward models. What have you seen work mostly, though, with purchasing departments? We need to remember that procurement does what procurement does because we taught them. It's our system. They didn't say, hey, agencies, we're going to pay you by the hour. It was our system. We didn't used to be paid this way. If you watch Mad Men, agencies were paid commissions. There was no such thing as hourly rates and timesheets, and agencies were very profitable businesses. It's when we decided to unbundle ourselves and we split media away from creative. And so we we had agencies scramble to find a different revenue model if they couldn't make their money on commissions. So David Ogilvie, who claims to be the father of the fee system, looked at law firms as, as a model and copied it. You would make appointments with their clients and say, hey, we want to have a meeting with you to talk about a new compensation system. We're not going to charge you commissions anymore. So we created the system. We taught it to procurement. Our view is it's time to change the system again and go explain to clients, here's how we want to be paid. And it's the job of the seller, not the buyer. Absolutely. To devise pricing strategies. The simplest is fixed price for fixed scope. Is simply saying, great, we have an idea what we're going to do for you here. Here's the team that we're going to assign to it. So you're confident that they're talented people. Right. But we're not going to bill you by the hour for it. We're not going to reconcile estimated against actual and all of that nonsense. We're just going to do what we said we're going to do at this price. How does that sound? And almost every semi-reasonable client is going to say, okay, it's not going to cost me any more money. No. Okay. Yeah. And that's my answer to legacy relationships that some firms, you've had a client for 10 years and they're used to paying you by the hour. And most of them say, great, price isn't going up, right? Same people, right? Right. We're just going to switch from inputs to outputs. So rather than tracking and reporting the hours that go into the work, we're going to track and report the deliverables, the actual work itself. I've yet to see a client organization who says, no, we don't want to do that. Yeah. They like it, actually. Yeah. It's like it, to them, it feels it's better. We have a client that we've worked with for 40 plus years, and that's actually how the purchasing department wants to work. Did we get what we said we were going to get from you? As long as yeah. you can prove that, you can bill us for it. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that there came a point in your career where you had led some really big agencies and some really big work and you stepped back and said, hey, I think that this is what I'm about. I want to help other agencies. How did mm-hmm. that come to be? And mm-hmm. what was it in you that said, this is my core purpose. This is the work I want to do in the world. I think for a lot of people like me, and this was true for me, my firm, we had just merged with another firm. Mm-hmm. And that creates some reflection time for the principals in the business. I'd always had this, as I said, this academic streak. I'd always wanted to write and teach and present. And I thought maybe this is the time when I could do that. I was still pretty young. I think I was maybe late 40s and had a family and was used to making a decent living. And I thought, so I'm going to hang out a shingle and give this a try. What's the worst that could happen? It goes bust. It's a complete failure. So what? I can go get another job next week or I could start another agency. I felt like I had some options. Luckily, I had a couple of takers fairly early on when I announced what I was doing. Were you all the way on your own or did you have a team at that point? I was on my own and I decided that I was going to keep the consultancy as a small business that Maybe we'd have a couple of employees, which we've had over the years, but that I would also would have a network of other like-minded consultants where we could work together in a collaborative way. And I've even gone a step beyond that. About four years ago, 
I formalized a partnership with two colleagues in London. And together we go to market as, as the business model company. And I still operate Ignition as my own brand. And a lot of the work I do is with Ignition. Sometimes when we work for a multinational company where we need representation on both sides of the Atlantic, then I operate with my colleagues there. So my business card now says United States and United Kingdom. That's interesting because so much of the work I do is actually in other parts of the English speaking world. I have two business partners myself, and I I don't know what I'd do without them to have people to bounce ideas off of and see things differently than I do. It's invaluable. So what's on the horizon for you? You said you're a researcher by nature. So what are you looking into these days? Well, if you look at the arc of your career, one of the people I've tried to model mine after is uh, the late, great Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He's a fellow Utah, and he's the father-in-law of one of my former partners. So I got to know Stephen quite well, and he was a mentor both directly and indirectly early in my career. I watched what he did, and he built a very small consulting firm. I mean, when he wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, they had seven people on staff. It was small, but really good and really focused on what they were doing. And so he did build a a bigger business, eventually sold to Franklin Institute, now Franklin Covey. But Stephen himself evolved from running this company and being on airplanes all the time and these big consulting relationships to more writing and and speaking. That's what's next for me. I've got a third book that I'm finally starting to work on. My books so far have had a pretty unique business audience. People who say, oh, you're an author? And I say, no, no, you wouldn't be interested. You You don't want to buy this book. I actually am working on a strategy book that I think could have a broader audience. And so I guess that's what's next for me. I'm so excited for you. And I will definitely read it. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to samantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. In all your years of experience, what's a core truth that you live by or a piece of advice that you like to offer others? I'm inspired by the Peter Drucker quote. I'll paraphrase it. He said, profit is not the objective of a business. It's just a manifestation of its viability. If you're making a profit, it's because you're doing something other people find valuable. To be in business just to make money just to make a profit is a pretty meaningless existence. I think most of us feel that way. I'm drawn by that and led by that quote, because I think that we've always got to be motivated by a a deeper purpose. And we've got to pursue client relationships and business relationships where we know we can help them achieve their sense of purpose. That I find the most fulfilling kind of work you can do. What do you consider your purpose, Tim? Well, it's to help really smart people do what they do best. Said in a different way on our 
homepage of the Ignition website, we liberate professional firms from the tyranny <laughs> of an unfocused business strategy and a suboptimal pricing approach. That's awesome. Um, because you can be trapped on this hamster wheel and a lot of us feel it, right? Who are we? Who are we trying to be? And you're judged by how busy you are and your utilization rate. And that's pretty unfulfilling. So when you find a little deeper purpose, then you've got a more satisfying work and life experience. You've tapped into the emotion that you're trying to create. You're freeing people from this trap. That's the word I hear most often as a result of the, the work we do is, wow, this feels really liberating. And I've noticed how many times that word gets articulated. What's a question rolling around in your mind right now, Tim, that I could pass along to another or to our listeners? I would invite listeners to think about to what extent have they aligned their personal interests with their business interests? And are your people finding satisfaction in, in the work they do? Are they drawn by a deeper purpose than just making money? It's this question of why do you get up in the morning? And I think companies, it's a hard, it's an infernally difficult question. And you can't just manufacture it out of the air. That's why of those four W's we described, I used to start with why. I used to start with a question of purpose. Because it's at the center, but I found through the School of Hard Knocks, that is a really difficult place to start. Because unless you know what your purpose is, it takes a lot of work to find it. It's deep inside the, the corporate DNA. It's there, but it takes some work to discover what it is. And that's the word, discover. You're not manufacturing it. You're discovering it. Now I do it at the very last. Like I said, we're having these conversations as an agency right now, figuring out our what and our how, but certainly it's going to come back to revisit that why so that we yeah. can believe it when we champion it with our client. I have learned so much from you today. Thank you for making time for us. Thank it's, you again. It's, it's been my great pleasure. Thanks, awesome. Misty. As I said, Tim is such a great expert on topics like focus, differentiation, branding, and growth. I've known many agencies that have leveraged his experience and found not only their primary industry target or vertical, but uniquely found what they offer as an agency, growing their business on a much bigger, sometimes national scale. The lesson to all of us as marketers comes down to prioritization. It's very hard to find a niche and say no to those things that don't make us as unique. I especially love his concept of death by a thousand features. I know I struggle with this. We all love to offer our clients and customers the most services, not just our best services. So if you're in this boat, try to define which products and services or features your clients actually value and focus your efforts and growth there. Even if you can do other things, doesn't mean you should. On our next episode, I'll be talking to the CMO of Pella Windows and Doors, Emily Vedetto. I met Emily through a coworker, and I have been blown away by her intelligence and the number of cutting-edge marketing strategies and plans Emily and her team have underway. For any B2B or B2C marketer, Emily will share what makes Pella different, not only in its innovation, but in its execution. As always, please subscribe to our show by downloading all three seasons anywhere you listen to podcasts or go to marketingsweats.com or samantle.com slash blog to learn more. While you're there, I'd appreciate it if you'd give me a review. We're always trying to get better based on your feedback. Until next time, keep up the good work, marketers. Marketers.